0: Hey everybody, back again for another Dining Room Chalkboard Lecture. It is the end of week six and in fact uh, today is the second to last official lecture for the content portion of this course. Uh, Tuesday, By Tuesday will we will be posted uh, a lecture on uh, the final avenue of reform, direct democracy, a deeper dive than we've looked at already, just as we're going to be doing a deeper dive today on, the, on uh, two of the avenues and comparing these two avenues. It is day 56 of the self quarantine that is eight full weeks uh, that now starts to seem like a really long time especially because it also seems like if I'm lucky it's the midpoint and that's an awful lot of weeks uh, but we're finishing up week six today I'm finishing up week six today after next week week seven one lecture one paper due so a, a, essentially a day off I air quotes that because there's really no days on or days off on the schedule only one official set of readings and lectures and then a paper due next week. And then uh, starting in week eight is going to be the interesting in-class, really air quote the hell out of that, exercise uh, where we're going to be uh, dissecting the plan, the Portland city government and the uh, plan, the very concrete plan to reform that city, uh, that form of city government. And we're going to be ourselves engaging in what is both a classroom exercise and therefore hypothetical, but because it's a thing that's really happening in the world, a real world example of political reform that's actually on the move. Doesn't mean it's gonna happen, doesn't mean our city government form is gonna be changed in the next several years, but it is very realistically on the table. So that's what's coming. So this is is the sort of getting to the culminating point of the content portion of the class, and the final few weeks will be more active in the sense that it's less me giving video lectures and you listening and reading and doing uh, uh, assignments and more rolling up the sleeves and getting involved in seeing what it's like to actually plan uh, and evaluate and work with the people on a specific political reform. Okay, today's class is Statutory Reform versus Judicial Policymaking. Uh, And I've already got the notes on the board. I do have a piece of chalk which I'm gonna put down because I I think that I could probably and should really just try to get through all of this without adding more to this board. What I'm going to do today is deepen my explanation of judicial reform from last time uh, by comparing it to statutory reform, and then I would say probably deepening what I said about uh, statutory reform earlier in the course by looking more at the dynamics of it and focusing on some specific examples. The case today is campaign finance, uh, which is... A very major uh, and uh, sort of top-shelf form of political reform. In terms of the things, the political reform topics that most people are aware of, I would say that campaign finance is probably the number one, by far. Uh, The biggest complaint generally about politics is that money is too influential, and so campaign finance is uh, the area of political reform that addresses the biggest, most enduring complaint about uh, politics, which is the role of money in it. Um, So, there are two readings for today, and the two readings are uh, uh, both quite different and very interestingly related. Um, One reading is the Citizens United uh, Supreme Court ruling, which uh, is such a major transformative event in the world of political reform uh, and in the history of the supreme court that it's really worth reading the actual uh, ruling instead of just reading about the ruling or hearing about the ruling and so i'm not going to talk a ton today about the actual uh things that the court says in that ruling uh what i do uh, expect is that you either will have read it by the time you watch this or after you watch the, uh, this you will you will read it this is a good place where the uh uh, viewer mail discussion forum could come in because you may have questions about it that I don't necessarily I'm not going to give you a full lecture on it. So I can't uh, um, Answer those questions in advance. I can't necessarily anticipate what those questions are so far I haven't had a lot of action in the viewer mail And you know, I, I get it. It's 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 an unfamiliar and awkward form of interaction But this would be a time where you might read that and go. Wow I really could use some guidance uh, and it would be helpful if you left a viewer mail uh, post that had some specific questions and then on Sunday, I can sit down. It would actually be the following Sunday because uh, I go on a week delay, but better late than never in terms of uh, getting your questions answered about a major case like Citizens United. The other reading is from a book written by a former uh, Supreme Court justice recommending, each chapter recommends essentially a new constitutional amendment that addresses a problem in uh, the court's jurisprudence in some particular area. In this this case, the area is... Uh, campaign finance. You uh, read a gerrymandering chapter from the same author earlier in the term, or you were assigned one. I don't know if you actually read it or not, but you were assigned one. Uh, the thing about this chapter is that it doesn't read like a court ruling. It reads like a book, but it's all about court rulings. It's essentially a former chief or former Supreme Court Justice's analysis of a particular area of court jurisprudence, uh, in this case campaign finance. and he talks about where he thinks things are correctly and incorrectly ruled, uh, and then, based on his analysis of where campaign finance jurisprudence stands today, post-Citizens United, uh, recommends a political reform in the form of a, a, a constitutional amendment. Which will never have. It. None of the constitutional amendments recommended in this book were ever going to have. I mean, that's we could, I don't want to sound too 100% absolutely sure, but it just seems like the, the, the barriers to getting these in the, in the Constitution are, are high under normal circumstances and they're kind of insider baseball recommendations for uh, change, and so they're likely to have the kind of political traction that's necessary to get a, a constitutional amendment even considered, much less across the finish line. But that reading... And it's actually, if, I forget what order it is, in the, I think is listed first on the syllabus, actually that reading might be the better one to do before you dive in, because it is written more for a popular audience and less for the, you know, essentially the legal world, which is how Supreme Court rulings are, are written. And they're very densely packed with citations and precedent and footnotes and, and, and uh, often can be, just be very challenging to read and understand to somebody who hasn't been trained in the law and training constitutional law. So those are the readings, and I'm I'm, I'm going to refer to campaign finance throughout today's lecture uh, in kind of glancing ways. I'm not going to go deeply into any of the ideas or any of the restrictions, uh, because this class is really not about learning what campaign finance law is, or even learning the history of campaign finance reform, which you get a little bit of the history of it from the readings, and uh, I'll give you a little bit of the history of it today. if you're interested in, in the history of campaign finance reform, they're pretty good. You can really just go to the internet and find, find that stuff out. So that's, that's what I'm not going to be doing today. Campaign finance is really more of an example and one that I will only tangentially cover to explore these two uh, different avenues and to see what it takes to get something across the finish line. Now, the statutory avenue is a challenging one because it requires a majority of two elected bodies that are constituted differently Uh, even at the state legislative level where the the difference between the House and the Senate is uh, there there are there are uh, less stark differences between the two bodies of a state legislature mostly because of Baker versus Carr uh, which requires that uh, states actually have their uh, both Senate and House districts be uh, populations that are uh, equal to each other so no longer can states use counties to represent, uh, counties can't have representation in the Senate the way they used to be before Baker versus Carr. Um, whereas in the United States, states, regardless of their population, uh, get two members of the Senate. So uh, the US Congress has a starker difference between the two houses than state legislatures do because of Baker versus Carr. Um, there are other reasons why that's the case, most of which have to do with um, the, uh, the diversity of the population represented as well as the election cycle. Uh, Many states use a two-year election cycle for the House and a four-year election cycle for the Senate as opposed to a two- and a six-year cycle, which may not seem like a huge difference, but politically it actually creates an even greater divide. So the main obstacle to statutory reform is that every piece of legislation that gets passed by Congress or by a state legislature has to be agreed upon by two different bodies— Word for word, letter for letter, comma for comma, and then it has to be signed into law by an executive, or barring the uh, executive signature and an executive veto, it then has to reach a higher threshold with a supermajority. So it's democracy in action. The statutory uh, um, avenue is what we might think of as normal politics, day-to-day politics. Uh, Legislatures are in session all the time. Elections happen frequently and all the time, and regularly there's there's a regularized every two-year Turnover. Um, Congress is in session constantly, though they take breaks. But some state legislatures are more sporadic. The Oregon state legislature is more sporadic, far more sporadic. Some state legislatures are in business more often. But this statutory is really what we can think of as day to day, regular, normal politics, as opposed to extraordinary politics, which is the constitutional amendment, or uh, judicial. Uh, policy making, which is also very day to day. in fact, even more day to day than the uh, legislatures because courts are constantly uh, uh, taking action. Courts are constantly evaluating cases. Statutory approaches to any issue, the first bullet point ha- I have here is they are sporadic because essentially what is done in a legislature is up to the constraints of time, and the legislative priorities of whatever party happens to be in the majority, or if there's a split, like the House is in Democratic hands and the Senate's in in uh, Republican hands, uh, like it is today, then the, the way that each of the party leaders sort of negotiate their priorities. But statutory, while it's what I've just referred to as normal politics, it's day-to-day politics, it's always ongoing, um, and elections are constantly happening, and there's, there's the potential always for turnover, the attention to any one particular issue is sporadic. And any given legislative session is only going to focus on a small handful of issues. Now, other business gets done. There's always things being done. Uh, There's always committee hearings. There's always bills being written. There's always bills being considered. There's always all kinds of investigations happening and oversight. Uh, So it's not as though legislatures are just on two or three big issues and then they move on to two or three, you know, they shift out. Uh, But what gets across the finish line? is very much more sporadic and it's largely based on a a number of different factors Uh, i have reactive down here um, i'm going to jump ahead but it's reactive to what the political conditions are right the statutory uh, domain is political as opposed to judicial so i should actually i'm going to put it i I said i wasn't going to try to add to the notes but here i am i can't help it it's political right and it's reactive to political conditions And political conditions change all the time. They change based on new elections, bringing new people in. They change based on shifts in public opinion. Uh, Public opinion shifts because of major events. Public opinion also shifts just because time uh, passes and uh, new concerns just come up and and, uh, new generations rise and old generations die out. Uh, So political conditions are, I won't say constantly changing, but they do change Somewhat frequently, and of course, when there are major events such as a pandemic or a terrorist attack or an economic crisis or some kind of uh, you know uh, uh, major problem like you know a series of uh, shootings, that will change the political conditions. What goes at the top of the policy agenda, right? It's sporadic. It's driven by essentially the policy agenda. What goes to the top of the policy agenda depends on the political conditions. We don't get political reform very often. And the reason we don't get political, I should say, we don't get political reform through the statutory avenue very often. And one of the reasons we don't is because the political conditions don't generally merit elected officials changing the rules of the system. And there's uh, an even, that right there is the even bigger obstacle to statutory change. I would say the the, the sort of normal institutional obstacle is the bicameral legislature and the fact that each of the chambers tends to have a different makeup. If you've got an election cycle of two years versus six years, if you have constituencies that are district-based versus an entire state, if you have uh, 435 members of one body, 100 members of another body, all of those and other differences between the two, uh, bodies are going to contribute to different perspectives on what is important, um, and so uh, there are there are those hurdles. The other major hurdle for political reform, and that's a hurdle for all forms of reform, is that is the bicameral uh, nature of our legislative system and the status quo orientation that that brings along with it. The other hurdle for political reform that's specific is that elected officials are being asked by political reformers to rewrite the rules that they, the elected officials, are already winning under. And when you have a system that is working for you, why would you possibly change it? Right? Definitely the, the, the horribly cliché dictum, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, uh, applies here and in a very specific way. Because a system could seem to be broken from the outside. right? Voters might say, there's too big a role of money, and incumbents have too much of an advantage, and uh, Congress doesn't need to be responsive to the, de- the desires and will of the people because of these uh, barriers to uh, us getting rid of them. That can seem like a broken system from the outside. From the inside, from people who are winning, uh, it seems like the system is functioning perfectly well. Uh, and political reformers are usually asking Elected officials, when they're using the statutory uh, realm, when it's the only available realm, or when it's the most likely available realm, uh, or avenue, is uh, they're asking people to to accept that the system is broken and needs to be fixed. When there's an automatic tilt towards elected officials thinking that the electoral system works just fine. And the only changes that they're really going to want to make is to make it even more amenable to their continued victory. Um, So if, for example, uh, you are somebody who is elected because a certain group of voters is way more likely to vote because of structural, cultural uh, um, uh, barriers to the participation of certain people and the lack of barriers to the participation of other people, and the people who have fewer barriers are your voters, and the people who have higher barriers are your opponent's voters, not only do you not want to get rid of those barriers, you might want to actually increase the strength of those barriers. So you, you're, you're going to want to change the rules only to make things even easier for yourself, um, which will tend to go against what political reformers uh, uh, have a problem with, right? If, if the incumbency return rate is too high from the point of view of political reformers, if that just gives us an additional layer of status quo orientation to our political system, and it, and it means that real change, responsive to changes in, in uh, public opinion, are extremely difficult to achieve, then reformers are going to want to make it harder for incumbents to win. Incumbents, who are the ones who are writing the rules, are going to want to make it easier for incumbents to win. Um, So it's reactive in the sense that the political conditions not only have to be right, but the political conditions have to be very strong. Uh, It has to be, so for example, in other areas of uh, reform, say immigration reform, when are elected officials going to want to engage in immigration reform? when the public cares a lot about immigration when it's when it when the political conditions conditions are such that pressure is on to make a change now that is an area where politicians can can see an opportunity people care about immigration they want reform there's 11 million undocumented immigrants in the country that's uh, to a lot of constituents that's problematic either because some of them think that well those undocumented people actually ought to just be legitimized with some kind of amnesty, or other people are just like, 11 million undocumented people, that's 11 million people who've broken the law, who are just out there living in our communities. That, something has to be done about that. It has to be a crackdown. Either one of those uh, um, forms of public opinion is going to get some elected officials excited about putting uh, immigration reform onto the top of the political agenda and getting something across the finish line. Now, this particular area, I know this is not a class about uh, reform in general, but immigration reform often meets the criteria for the political conditions being right for uh, legislatures, for Congress to do something about it. Why do we almost never get immigration reform? It, and and we're, it's been an issue for a while now, and it's been an issue on and off for decades, uh, for really for, for most of American history. There are very few periods where actual immigration reform goes from being on the top of the agenda, because it's been on the agenda for the entirety of the Trump administration at least, uh, why why can't it get across the finish line with an actual uh, bill? In the case of immigration reform, it's because the political conditions to do something about what is considered by both Democrats and Republicans to be a broken system, they see the system as broken in a different way. Uh, And to Republicans... The system is broken because there are too many undocumented immigrants uh, and they need to be removed or uh, they th- there need to be barriers to letting more undocumented people come in. To Democrats, part of the reason why the system is broken is because here are mostly, the vast majority of these people are otherwise uh, law-abiding, tax-paying, uh, community-serving, uh, uh, non-citizens, but residents of the United States. And so taking these people out from underneath the shadow of the single technical illegality seems to be the problem. Um, And again, also, you know, Republicans tend to see uh, increased immigration as a threat to uh, the sort of white majority and to the sanctity of the American culture, the English-speaking nature, and Democrats tend to see immigrants as the source of our vitality and our diversity. Uh, And in terms of electoral prospects, right, Uh, Democrats see uh, legitimizing an awful lot of undocumented immigrants as a source of potential voters for them and Republicans tend to see that as a source of potential voters for their opponents. So uh, to get immigration reform from the top of the agenda, which is where it is, to actually across the finish line, is particularly problematic because it's very difficult to get any kind of uh, bipartisan agreement. Other areas of reform, and campaign finance is actually one of those, the, the, the uh, parties actually have the ability, based on their platforms and their perspectives, to come to either some kind of a compromise or to actually agree on certain kinds of principles. So, for example, the economic reform of the late 90s, uh, was a, there was a bipartisan consensus that uh, there ought to be a deregulation of the financial system. Uh, So so the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act, which uh, um, I I definitely don't need to get into this, if you're interested, look it up. Uh, But the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act was actually a bipartisan act and responsive to political conditions, which were the country was prosperous and the politicians had an interest in keeping the country prosperous and making it even more prosperous, and one of the barriers to increased prosperity seemed to be uh, either excessive regulation of, the, of financial institutions, holding them back from innovation based on 60-year-old laws that dated from uh, the response to the Great Depression, um, or the potential for regulating new innovative forms of financial transactions that would slow down the growth of those. And so there was a bipartisan consensus because both parties saw the problem the same way. They saw that they wanted to make sure that there was investment, that financial institutions could be innovative, and uh, um, uh, that they, they could drive the wealth of the nation upward with few limits. So, the, and the political conditions were right to deregulate. Now, this is, I always, I shouldn't say always, I often use this as an example to push back against people's desires for greater bipartisanship. Because just because a policy is bipartisan, doesn't mean it's actually smart. A bipartisan policy means that, for whatever reasons, the two different parties both see the same policy as in their interests, and in their interests usually means, and this is what the political conditions in a democracy are, that their voters will be much more likely to support them and that they will continue to get support from voters as well as from uh, funders. Bipartisan uh, agreement doesn't mean that the policy is wise or that it will be effective, or that it's long-term, stabilizing, and beneficial. And the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act, the failure to regulate uh, financial innovations such as uh, collateralized debt obligations and other forms of derivatives uh, was uh, actually a really terrible idea in terms of policy and it contributed in a very direct way to the housing crisis and the financial collapse uh, and the recession, the Great Recession of 2007-2008 and beyond. Uh, That was a result of bipartisan uh, policy. So bipartisanship by itself is not necessarily the avenue to good policy. However, if there isn't an area where the two parties' ideologies actually don't take them in different directions, and the political conditions are right that this is an issue that the American people or some influential chunk of the American people want tackled right now, That's when we're going to get some kind of reform. That's why it's so sporadic, is because the only reason why elected officials even put something at the top of the policy agenda, and only things in the top two or three issues are going to get across the finish line, you can't do all the things you want to do all at once, even if you have both houses of Congress and the presidency, and that's actually something that people like uh, presidents like uh, both Barack Obama and Donald Trump had to face. Like they came in with majorities in both houses, they were going to sign legislation and they had these ideas that they wanted all these pieces of legislation passed through quickly, it turns out that you can do one big thing at a time, maybe one big thing followed by one other semi-big thing and then then you're kind of, that's it. Uh, So it has to get to the top of the policy agenda and then in order to get any kind of actual reform, there has to be enough ground either for some kind of bipartisan uh, consensus or the political uh, conditions have to include that one party has a strong enough and unified enough majority that it can just act uh, in a uh, unilateral manner. So, for example, the reason we got the Affordable Care Act was not because the Republican and Democratic ideas on healthcare reform aligned enough that there was uh, some way of getting uh, a bipartisan consensus. It was that healthcare was an extremely important issue. The political conditions were such that the American people were uh, demanding, uh, there was uh, some kind of improvement, some kind of fix. Uh, medical bankruptcies were up, the pr- percentage of the un- uh, uninsured population was high, people were losing their benefits through work, uh, um, various kinds of uh, safe nets like Medicare and Medicaid were doing less for people and costing more. There was, uh, the political conditions were right for the elected officials to react. Reactive, as opposed to, and I'm just going to jump over here to point out the difference between reactive, and I could have just written responsive, but I put slowly responsive. Responsive doesn't have to always be slow, but responsiveness is a reflective uh, uh, addressing of a problem. Reactivity is just reacting. It is is just saying, oh, we're going to do something about it. Right? And as human beings we are kind of hardwired to be reactive as opposed to responsive. Um, and I will tell you personally that I have experienced both being a super reactive person and then now after several years of uh, uh, meditation I've learned to be more responsive. It's way better when uh, something happens that one of my kids annoys the crap out of me and it happens uh, all the time. Uh, Being reactive is snapping and punishing and laying down a new rule and just doing that thing. And sometimes the reaction can be a good one, but most of the time it's not. Responsiveness is saying, okay, that annoys the crap out of me, but I'm not gonna just snap. I'm gonna reflect and think about and come back with some kind of uh, answer to this. And it doesn't necessarily mean that things won't change. A punishment can be the result of a response but if it's uh, thoughtful, then later on you won't regret the punishment, whereas if you're reactive, you'll regret it. Normal politics tends to be reactive. One, because it's kind of hardwired into us as human beings. We're very easily, uh, we're defensive, and there are all kinds of good evolutionary reasons for this, um, but also the political system, because we have frequent elections, and those elections actually can, can go either way in a lot of cases, um, though, With more and more safe seats, that's less and less true, but elections can go either way, that politicians really have no choice but to be reactive in the short term. That's one of the differences between political and judicial reasoning, is that judges, because they're immunized from having to think about re-election and because they get lifetime appointments, they can actually be... Responsive and think through the uh, sort of legal and constitutional nature of problems without having to worry that they're going to be quickly judged for what they do or don't do, right? And the don't do part is important too. This is part of the political conditions. If the public cares about something and elected officials don't do anything about it, then the public is going to punish them for their lack of reactivity, for their lack of of a solution, right? Uh, One of the things that could have easily happened is that President Obama was elected, promising health care reform. There was a Democratic supermajority in the Senate. There was a strong Democratic majority in the House. Obama was committed to this. If the Democratic Party hadn't delivered some kind of meaningful health care reform, it could have easily backfired in the 2010 election, where people would have been like, we elected you to do something about this, and you didn't do anything about it, so we're going to get rid of you. Um, and that might be an unreasonable reactivity on the part of, of voters because, well, if you didn't like that Democrats didn't do anything about healthcare, what do you think that Republicans are going to do, right? They're not, gonna, they're not necessarily going to give you what you want. But voters are no less reactive than elected officials. We're all sort of engaged, locked in this sort of codependent dysfunctional reactivity, which is called democracy, right? That's actually codependent dysfunctional reactivity equals democracy. That's the, I think that I've probably never quite put it in exactly that way, but it strikes me as uh, I'm saying it, that that's not untrue. So if the Democrats hadn't delivered healthcare reform, 2010 would have looked bad. The fact is, is that the Democrats did deliver healthcare reform and 2010 would look bad anyway, because what happens when you deliver something to people in a reactive way, it may not be what they want, even if you deliver to them in a responsive way which I do think the Affordable Care Act was, was uh, written with a lot of deliberation, a lot of buy-in from the various stakeholders. It was, uh, for, for a major piece of legislation, it was actually very carefully crafted and had buy-in from all kinds of different uh, corners of the uh, healthcare care industry. Uh, even then, when you give people what they've asked for, they still might not like it. And that's actually one of the things that's kind of, that kind of sucks about being an elected official is, in many cases, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, right? If you don't deliver on healthcare reform, you're damned, they'll vote you out. If you do deliver, but you don't deliver something that's perfect and wonderful and makes everybody happy, which how can you possibly do that, uh, especially when you're doing it in a reactive short-term environment, then people are gonna be unhappy as well. This is one of the reasons why politicians are so easily, and one of the reasons why they evade so much And one of the reasons why uh, statutory responses are so sporadic anyway is because if you can actually seem like you're delivering without then doing something that pisses people off, that's how you keep public support, right? People think you're trying, but you don't give them something that they can then hate. Uh, That's actually kind of the threading the needle on being an elected official. Make sure that your supporters think that you're trying to do the things that they elect you to do. But, if possible, fall short of actually giving them something that they asked for, but then they can hate at least some aspect of it, right? Like, so many uh, Democrats hated the idea that the Affordable Care Act didn't include a public option, right? So they, they wanted health care reform, they got it, they didn't get their favorite version of it, and so that pissed them off too. Now in, in a case like this, and it's, it's possible, or it's likely that you can't always evade, right? Sometimes you have to take a side. Um, sometimes. You have, the, the, the costs of inaction are higher than the cost of action, and so you actually have to do something. That is that right there. And these kinds of calculations are the kinds of calculations that elected officials have to make. If they don't make these kinds of calculations, they don't win re-election. So it's not as though they're just calculative, calculating manipulative people. In order to win and keep winning and get to be the people who write the rules uh, and set the policies... And potentially solve the problems that they got them into politics in the first place. They have to keep winning. And so they have to be calculating. And the political conditions have to be right. So that the calculation of the people who are in charge of the rules have to say, the cost of doing nothing are bigger than the cost of trying to do something. Now, one of the other conditions, political conditions that needs to exist for political reform specifically um, because this particular area of reform has the additional barrier, which is that you're asking the people who are winning underneath the current set of rules to change those rules, and as a reformer, you're asking them to change it in a way that's probably going to make things harder for them, not easier for them. Um, so, uh, if you know, if, if you're a political reformer asking elected officials to make the rules different that will make it even easier for them to get reelected and hold on to their uh, their positions of power, they're going to go along with that. But that's not what most political reformers are going to be asking for. You have to be asking for that in a time when the public cares about that issue, when the costs of inaction are higher than action, and when you know it's your choice is okay. If we don't do something, it's going to be very difficult to get reelected. And if we do do something, we're going to make it more difficult to get reelected. But on balance, let's at least do something because we know what that avenue is going to be like. The other thing that contributes to uh, a political reform movement getting sporadic attention and getting across the finish line is a small set of individuals who either have nothing to lose because uh, they're probably retiring and they're more now concerned less about getting reelected and more about legacy. At a certain point in an elected official's career, legacy enters the calculation, and pushes aside re-election drive. Or, and these two things can actually go hand in hand, or you have enough uh, people who actually feel safe in their position, their elected position, that they can change the rules and not worry that that's going to hurt their chances of getting re-elected in the future. Uh, And when those two things align, when you have a safe seat, and you know, for example, that putting into place certain kinds of rules aren't going to change your seat safety or it's going it's to chip at the safety so little that you don't have to worry about it. That gives you then a chance to actually have a legacy and say, I was part of this major reform movement and put it like it, go, it goes on. It goes in your obituary, Right. Uh, not that it does you any good that it's in your obituary, but thinking ahead to your obituary is definitely something that a lot of people do. I, I've started to think about it not in a morbid constant way, but as I get older I'm like okay I would like to leave behind something where people could say here's what this guy did uh, and hopefully that will you know be high-profile enough that it actually goes into an obituary not just into the memory of the six kids or the six kids the six grandkids that my kids possibly have. I don't know why six. It's probably going to be six. Anyway um, so, the sporadic nature of the policy agenda needs to be achieved by a combination of political conditions, various political conditions, one of which typically will be, for something that's so difficult to do, change the rules of a system that the, this, that the people who write the rules of the system are already winning under. Legacy and safety are, uh, safety of the decision-makers' seats is, is, is paramount. Um, the latest round of campaign finance reform, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, uh, otherwise known as the uh, McCain-Feingold uh, Act, was bipartisan in nature, and it was bipartisan not because members of both, p- lots of members of both parties were for it. It was bipartisan because the two primary sponsors uh, were one Democrat and one Republican, and they themselves, in a way that was kind of beyond their party identities, they themselves agreed and were considering this as part of their legacy. That this was something they wanted to work together on and because money in politics is kind of an enduring issue always it's always simmering in the in the public consciousness as a problem it is it's really the one problem that we're consistently aware of for the last hundred plus years um, and because the country was so prosperous in the late 90s uh, and the bipartisan consensus was on policy that would continue that prosperity the, and there, there, there were no major enemies. This is pre-9-11, uh, where most of this work is done. It's a peaceful, prosperous, stable country. And there's a couple of legacy-oriented, prominent, powerful uh, elected officials who push for a major, finance, or major campaign finance reform movement. For the first time in one full generation, because the last time there was meaningful campaign finance reform was in the mid-70s, 25 years earlier, that came as a result of Watergate. Reactive, the political conditions are sometimes positive in nature, like we develop prosperity and peace and other issues drop away, and so you can actually focus on a, a problem that, that is simmering, like money and politics, but that can't, doesn't get to a boil because other things are boiling. Uh, Watergate brought the issue of corruption and campaign finance and the behavior of, camp, uh, of elected officials and candidates Directly because of that crisis directly into the consciousness of the American people and so elected officials were like, oh We have to do something otherwise if we don't this is going to be a case where we're damned if we don't it's going to change the landscape That we have trod upon for decades and that we are adapted to and and winners at But if we don't do this then we're going to be thrown out for sure because the public is really because of this major crisis really demanding uh, action Uh, so Political conditions are not always a result of a crisis, but a crisis is really uh, one of the key uh, um, success factors. It's not the only, it's not a, a necessary condition, but it's definitely a prominent one that will push forward. It also doesn't necessarily result in success, right? Uh, the number of, uh, of mass shootings that uh, we've witnessed over the last decade, really, uh, has, you know, c- continually makes gun violence and mental health and gun regulations uh, a, 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 an issue in the public consciousness. The political conditions are right, but they're not right enough to overcome the obstacles to, uh, to changing uh, those laws or to, to getting uh, sort of gun safety and mental health provision past the finish line for actual reform. So the conditions are right there for attention, but the conditions aren't strong enough to actually get success. And the same thing will be, it can be said for political reform. There's often a concern enough that the public turns to elected officials and says, you need to fix this broken piece of our system. And an elected officials are like, okay, we hear you, but the conditions aren't strong enough that then that gets something across the finish line. That's one of the reasons why things are so sporadic. Now, I'm going to move to the next one. I should have actually had reactive be second, but I didn't think about the order of this when I put it up here. Statutory reform, in political reform anyway, in other areas of reform, this is and isn't true, but uh, in political reform, they're usually wide-ranging. In other words, once the conditions are right for a statutory approach to political reform, we're going to address money in politics. We're going to address... Uh, the problem of uh, um, gerrymandering. We're going to we're going to address uh, the um, you know the uh, uh, well really the, the, that's it from the statutory realm. Um, the bill that gets written and passed tends to be large, and it's this is because once there's now not just an opportunity for reformers to get something done, and they want to get a lot done because reformers understand. I think experienced reformers understand that. Opportunities to get a bill passed don't come along very often. So when there is an actual opportunity, you better take it and, and do as much as you possibly can with it. But also, um, elected officials want to give once they decide that the people need something from them, uh, they want to give them a big thing. And uh, nobody's and, and then if there's legacy involved, nobody's gonna wants to build their legacy on a trivial movement of. Uh, the the uh, political system in a better direction. They want to move it in a pretty big direction, and so uh, statutory reforms tend to be big. Um, and that is, I mean, that that's understandable for a lot of reasons, and that's and that's a good thing. It creates a real opportunity. These opportunities come along so infrequently; they're very sporadic. The window doesn't stay open for very long, but it's a pretty big window, and you can shove a lot of stuff through that particular window. Now, the last two. Um, are might seem weird to you as a combination, but this is the contradictory nature of statutory reform. They're enduring because our legislative system is so status quo oriented that once a law has been passed, technically it can be amended or repealed at any time with the exact same Uh, institutional process that got that law in place in the first place. It just takes a majority of both houses and the signature of the executive or a veto override. The exact same conditions repeal something as got it voted in the first place. But we have a status quo orientation and a repeal effort is the same, uh, faces the same obstacles as uh, a reform effort in the first place. All of the reasons why the political conditions are so rare and uh, uh, infrequent to get a reform across the finish line are doubly so for repealing a reform. One, it requires those very strong political conditions to get people to be reactive. And two, now what you have to be doing is taking something away from people. And uh, if reform is challenging enough, if giving people something that they demand is hard and it is taking something away from people that they're now used to is even harder because now you have to say i'm sorry this thing that, that took us forever to get to you and now you've gotten used to it we're going to take it away uh, i think that the you know the affordable care act is a great example because uh, immediately republicans started saying we're going to repeal and replace repeal and replace and they won election after election on that mantra and then after the 2016 election they had a majority in both houses, and they had a president who his like, strongest desire was to destroy everything Barack Obama had ever done, and so all the conditions would have seemed to be in place to repeal, if not necessarily replace. But the problem is, is that repeal would just be taking something away from people, and the Republicans in Congress, at least a, a sufficient number of them understood that they really did need the replace, and they really didn't have a replace, and there really wasn't a whole lot of political momentum for replacement. They didn't really not only did they not have the ideas, there weren't the political conditions that were right for such a big change so quickly. And people were used to, enough people were used to what the Affordable Care Act had given them that yanking it away from them was going to be, uh, was going to, to uh, result in a steep political price being exacted uh, on the Republican Party. And so Republicans, they made all, they, they, they actually did what I described earlier, which is they worked hard to make it look like they were trying to do something but they also didn't want to actually then give people the thing because then that would have been a target on their own backs, right? Whatever the replace would have been, would have then been something to, uh, for voters to be dissatisfied with. So they did the thing that's, that, that politicians often try to do under all kinds of conditions, both Democratic and Republican, which is make it seem like they're trying to get something done, but, but, but don't actually get there because as soon as you hand people something, that gives them something, something to react against. This is where I actually feel bad for elected officials is that they know that if they actually do something that the people have demanded from them, that the people are going to actually then just be pissed that the thing that they got wasn't exactly what they wanted and it wasn't perfect or it had unforeseen consequences that they didn't uh, understand. Uh, so it's, it's tough because you want to give the people what, what they want, but you know that if you give it to them, eh, it's probably going to be problematic. It's like being a parent, in, in a way. You, know, you want to give your kids that ice cream, that treat, because it will make them so happy. But then they'll get sick, uh, or they'll have a stomachache, and then they'll complain. Like, oh, why did you let me eat that ice cream, that fifth bowl of ice cream? I was so sick. It's like, well, that's what you wanted. right? Maybe, maybe that's not such a great analogy, but I, I do think it captures at least some of that relationship. Um, but that's why reforms are enduring, because it's even harder to take something back. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, right? It certainly does happen. And probably the biggest example of uh, a, a major reform through the hardest avenue, the constitutional avenue, that was not enduring at all was prohibition. Prohibition, to, to get a prohibition amendment in the US Constitution, two-thirds of both houses, three-quarters of the states. That's, that's a pretty, you know. I hope you appreciate the barrier of that. How did that happen, right? How did a country that was based on drinking uh, decide, with two levels of really high supermajorities, to actually get rid of it? Uh, That actually, that's a a story about how effective an extremely organized, unified, tenacious minority can be. And the temperance movement had been going for decades. It didn't crest until uh, the teens, but it had been around for decades. Essentially building this case and building the the relationships. Uh, the the reason why that one wasn't enduring was because it was such a bad idea that the negative consequences were immediately apparent and the backlash created a set of reactive political conditions that led to a really rapid repeal i mean to get a constitutional amendment done in 12 years from scratch is almost unthinkable to get a constitutional amendment done that actually reverses a previous constitutional amendment, which itself took decades to get done, is astounding. Uh, that it shows, though, that it can happen, right? A, a reform effort can be so disastrous that the backlash uh, is uh, relatively swift, and you know, prohibition lasted for twelve years, but it was it was relatively that's relatively swift in, in, in political time for sure. that's half a generation. Uh, usually, changes have to go on what I consider to be the a generational cycle of twenty five years. The sporadic nature of campaign finance reform from Watergate through the late nineties and the early twenty uh, first century was about a generation. That tends to be the kind of cycle that happens uh, in, in our political system. Um, they're enduring. Because it's really hard to undo that which was it itself was really hard to do. Prohibition and its repeal being, the, I would say, the notable exception that to lean on a dumb cliché proves the rule. Why is it vulnerable? Well, the reason why it's vulnerable is because any statutory reform effort in whatever area of policy happens to be in um, is subject to... judicial policymaking system. Right, Every act of Congress is potentially a subject for judicial scrutiny and overturning through judicial review. That's the vulnerability. Um, And one of the things that reformers try to do, as carefully as they possibly can, is they try to tailor the legislation to uh, judicial to, to withstand judicial scrutiny. It's not as though members of Congress uh, and state legislatures just write bills and just say okay, that's get get that done and all we care about is it pleasing the people. They want to please the people enough that they get reelected, they also want to make sure that it will withstand judicial logic. Now, judicial logic is very different than political logic. Everything I've said here has to do with political logic. It's po- it's it's a political system. Doesn't, political logic doesn't necessarily produce good policy, as I indicated with the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act and the essentially financial non-regulation of the late uh, 90s. Uh, just because the political uh, conditions actually push in a bipartisan direction doesn't necessarily make it good policy. There are people in the statutory area paying attention to good policy. And every bill starts off as a policymaker's dream. Right? Like, okay, here's the problem. Here's the things that could fix that problem. Here are the new changes that will address that problem. We'll get something. And we've tried to pay attention to unintended consequences and unforeseen problems uh, as much as possible. And a, a bill that gets across the finish line has started as a beautiful idea somewhere. Um, but political calculations enter as soon as a bill gets introduced, and even often before a bill gets introduced, even as a bill is being written, the Affordable Care Act was an example where there was this like very problematic balancing between political considerations and policy considerations, right, and the political considerations are well we have to make sure that whatever we build is going to have enough support that we can actually get it across the finish line. You don't want to write a bill that is perfect that can't win, right? That was actually the huge problem with the Clinton health care plan was that it was all built in-house among uh, sort of policy wonks led by Hillary Clinton, who was learning to be a policy wonk at the time, uh, or actually yeah, she, was, she was already good, she was learning to become even better, and then they took this big plan and they handed it to Congress, and Congress was like, that's not how it works, right? You, you have to, you can't just give us a plan, even if the plan seems from the policymaker's point of view, from your little desk with your eye shades and your lamps and your pencils, your mechanical pencils, to be the ideal policy we have to get this across the finish line. And to get it across the finish line means we have to have political calculations. You didn't take into account the major stakeholders who might be impacted by this. Uh, you didn't take into account their, their influence and what their opposition might mean. The Obama administration, I believe, consciously learned from that problem, that, that mistake, and brought in the stakeholders early on. Uh, so for example, the health insurance companies were consulted. They were at the table the entire time. One of the reasons we got the individual mandate was because they were there demanding that, as sort of compensation for all the regulations, particularly the pre-existing condition regulations, that they were going to have to accept, that were going to raise their costs. They wanted a guaranteed uh, um, base of uh, of, cl- of customers, and that and they actually said, "We will if you don't have the individual mandate, we'll go to war against this bill, and if you do, we won't." And so that was a political calculation. Uh, And that's always going to be the case, right? The uh, political calculations are going to be big. There are also then judicial calculations, which are, okay, we we want to do this in a way that's going to withstand judicial scrutiny. The problem is judicial scrutiny is, while sort of predictable because of precedent, um, it is also unpredictable because uh, the makeup of the Supreme Court the final decider, the makeup of the appellate courts, which do a lot of the decision-making, is always changing. But it's not changing in a steady, predictable, or uh, um, similar way to the way the makeup of the political system is changing, which happens as a result of elections and the political conditions that have a lot to do with public opinion and uh, the events that are going on around each particular election. The, uh, uh, The court makeup changes slowly and fitfully, right? And certain I- administrations get way more appointments than others. And the two main considerations for the speed of turnover are whether or not the president has uh, a senate that is uh, controlled by his party, which doesn't always happen, and whether or not there are enough vacancies to be able to make, uh, to, to be able to get a, uh, a compliant senate to be able to fill a lot of spots and, uh, neither one of those things is directly in the control of anybody, right? Uh, that you know, a president can come to office and campaign successfully for, uh, you know, or effectively to get a majority in the Senate, and then once they're in office, they can campaign effectively or ineffectively to keep their Senate majority. Um, but the, uh, and that you can't necessarily do that, like, it doesn't necessarily work, right? Barack Obama lost his Senate majority after the 2010 election largely because. Uh, of the passage of the Affordable Care Act and the backlash that that, that, that generated among progressives. Uh, but and, and what that meant was that for the next six years, Barack Obama had a slog getting the vacancies filled. And then, of course, the number of vacancies that there are is completely out of the hands of anybody but the people who are the judges who are in those positions. Um, so it's impossible to know, because a piece of legislation is enduring, it's going to last for a really long time it's going to potentially last forever what is not known though is okay here's what the court looks like now here's what precedent uh, established precedent is at this particular moment um, and it's built up over several decades uh, and this bill this form of reform is it, it should be in alignment with the way the courts are viewing this particular area of jurisprudence right now and for the past several decades but we don't know if that's going to change or not and in fact one of the things that reform movements do is they test they put out feelers they see whether or not the courts are amenable and this is where shifting to the example of uh, reproductive rights and abortion is a good example Uh, state legislatures that have wanted to reform this area of reproductive rights and restrict uh, women's choices uh, about abortion they have been, since the mid-80s, and definitely way more uh, um, aggressively over the last decade, testing out the judicial policy-making system to see whether or not we've reached a tipping point that would involve a change in the acceptance of a policy. So a statutory reform is enduring until it's not, and it's always vulnerable to judicial uh, um, overturn. but. Its vulnerability increases, and and the unpredictability of its vulnerability increases as the as time passes. It's enduring because the political system is unlikely to undo a political reform. As I say, it happens, but it's but it, it, it's it's way more the exception rather than the rule. But it can happen through the, through the judicial realm. Now, let me. Go through this, and this is a lot of this is review from last time, and just maybe adding a few more examples, and, and maybe deepening your understanding of how the judicial policymaking uh, process goes. Uh, it's steady rather than sporadic, in this, in a couple of different senses. One, courts are always dealing with cases on every range, all ranges of issues. There's no need for anybody to decide what's going to be our policy agenda. What are we going to focus on? Courts take what's, what comes to them. Now, the Supreme Court itself rejects an awful lot of cases. There are thousands of appeal requests made every year. They take somewhere between 50 and 100 cases. So, uh, obviously, there's there's a policy agenda at the very top. But because so many judicial decisions are made at the circuit court level and they have to take all comers, they're constantly dealing with every area. And it also means that unlike legislature where there's only a little bit of time to deal with whatever, clearly the Supreme Court has a limited docket and a limited uh, amount of time to deal with cases, but there's always a supply. There's never a shortage of cases that the Supreme Court could take up. It's also steady in the sense that uh, the policymaking process, I referred to this as last time as judicial reform, and this time as judicial policymaking. It's actually both, right? And The, the, uh, the policymaking process in the judiciary is constant. Because one of the things that I hope you took away from last time is that a, uh, an important landmark case like Matt versus Ohio um, or Roe versus Wade or Brown versus Board of Education, uh, the landmark cases that people study in school and know about, they don't enact a wide-ranging sweeping policy all at once. Unlike a bill, right a bill, the bipartisan Campaign Reform Act was one bill. Um, uh, the, uh, um, the Campaign finance reform that came in the mid 70s was was three bills one major one and then two kind of amendment follow-ups uh, So it's not always just one bill, but it's usually one or two or three bills that you know that uh, get something across the finish line The Affordable Care Act was one bill uh, Supreme Court or I should I say judicial policy making occurs across Really quite literally dozens of cases that are slowly building up the policy. So it's steady and it's piecemeal and incremental. These three things actually kind of all go together to uh, build up, accrue what ends up being a wide-ranging policy, right? we end, you end up getting a fully fleshed out area of jurisprudence. So by the end of the 1970s, uh, reproductive rights uh, jurisprudence, abortion jurisprudence, has been established in a very fleshed out way, so it's very clear what it is that state legislatures are and are not allowed to do in terms of regulating or restricting women's reproductive rights. Um, that didn't, Roe versus Wade didn't do that. Roe versus Wade started that process and it pointed that process in a direction. That's one of the things that a landmark case does, is it points the policy in a particular direction. Map versus Ohio pointed the criminal justice system in the direction of the exclusionary rule, and then subsequent cases, in this case, there were, there were dozens of them, essentially created the actual boundary that judges would need fully, to fully be able to implement the, map, the policy that was created by Matt versus Ohio. Um, so this stuff, usually what we get is this happens over the course of a decade or more. Um, in the case of uh, uh, um, equal protection law, a couple of decades, but usually it's one to two decades of policymaking. It's slowly responsive, I guess that I should probably put all these things together, right? It's slowly responsive because what the courts are doing is, in each case, and this is, you know, a Supreme Court case could be heard in October and they don't announce the answer until June. A could be, a case could be heard in April and they don't announce it until June. But what happens is that the precedent, the arguments, the shifting court majority uh, is, uh, is essentially slowly put together. And what does actually happen sometimes is with a case that's particularly close and controversial is that there won't be a clear majority at the beginning. There's not just, okay, we five are on this side and you four are on that side. You guys write your dissenting opinions, we'll write a majority opinion. That does happen. But what often happens is that there'll be a kind of a conditional majority. And what happens then is that the different justices circulate potential opinion drafts, because it's not just the ruling; it's not just who wins. It's the reasoning and the the doctrine, as I hope you got from last time, uh, that really, really matter. Uh, announcing the winner, like you know, if the if Citizens United wins over the FEC, that itself is not important. It's what gets said, and how it's said, and what it contributes to this policymaking process, right? What is the increment, or in the case of Citizens United, what is the direction that the policy goes in? Because that was a landmark case. Um, so. The actual process, and it's similar to writing a bill, right? Bills don't just get introduced and voted on. They go through this very long, often themselves decades-long process, but the vote on it is the vote on that one bill. Whereas judicial policymaking is made up of dozens of cases that themselves are uh, months in the uh, analysis and writing of, and each of them is only incremental. They only add a small thing. They move it just in a little direction. So it is really more of a marathon than a sprint. I, that, I hate that particular cliched analogy. Uh, this is maybe the third or fourth uh, self-avowed cliché I've used today. I must just be in a cliché state of mind. But the judicial policymaking really is the marathon. Now, these two things are related also because the tipping point is that if policy is going in one direction, the right to have an abortion is acknowledged by Roe versus Wade, this points judicial policymaking in the direction of strengthening reproductive rights and the rest of the 70s and the fo- many follow-up cases that uh, occur as state legislatures try to abide by Roe v. Wade but also try to keep abortion to, uh, they can't outright outlaw, but try to keep it to a minimum. Um, as those further follow-up cases go through this whole process, what we get is we get a built-up policy um, to change that uh, reformers will look to undo the direction of that uh, um, that policy, and what they'll do, and this is where uh, I hope that you like there's, there are hints of this in the uh, in the reading on uh, campaign finance. Um, that uh, what happens is dissenters begin to lay down an entirely new policy. They write the new policy in dissenting opinions. Or sometimes they write the new policy in concurring opinions. They're on the side of the majority. They agree with the majority's ruling, but they disagree with the the majority's reasoning. And that's what a concurring opinion is. A concurring opinion is, I agree, I concur that this is the correct winner, but my view of what the jurisprudence ought to look like, my contribution to this piecemeal uh, policy-making process, I want it to go in a a different direction. Um, I mentioned last time this levels of scrutiny. the uh, strict scrutiny and rational review test, and then at a certain point, in, intermediate scrutiny was added. That it didn't just happen all at once that that was added. That was added as a result of a set of concurrences by the first female chief justice or first female uh, Supreme Court justice, uh, Sandra mm-hmm. Day O'Connor, who concurred with the majority on a lot of equal protection cases, but she agree- disagreed with the reasoning or she believed that. The reasoning ought to include more gender-based consideration, removing gender uh, um, analysis from the rational review and putting it closer to the strict scrutiny level, and that's how we got intermediate. That's how things tend to happen. Often it's dissenting opinions, really, that, that lay the groundwork, and in the case of the reading for today, and if you didn't see this, go back and look for it, Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce was a case where Um, A campaign finance rule was accepted by the majority of the Supreme Court, by seven of the nine justices, so it was a pretty strong majority. The two dissenters, Kennedy and Scalia, wrote a dissenting opinion that essentially prefigured what the Citizens United uh, reasoning would look like. And that's what dissenters do. They say, okay, Here's a way to understand the meaning of the relevant piece of the Constitution, in this case, the First Amendment, um, that is different than the majority has accepted. We are the losers for now, and they get to write the rules, they get to make judicial policy in this particular area, but in the future, when the court looks different than it looks today, and it will, it always does, the Supreme Court is an evolving organism, uh, it evolves at an unpredictable and uh, uncontrollable pace, And the direction of that uh, development is also unpredictable and uncontrollable because it's fully based on presidential and senate politics as well as longevity and age, retirement, all that stuff. A lot of factors go into the speed of the court's evolution and the direction of it. But they know it's evolving. And at some point, and maybe they'll be around for it. In this case, Scalia and Kennedy were. And maybe they won't be around for it. Um, But they're going to lay things down in a way that gives the new majority, the intellectual tools, and precedent to be able to reverse direction. And uh, that's what the tipping point is. And in Citizens United, both Scalia and Kennedy in Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce laid out what was basically the logic that the majority, the five justices that ruled uh, on, in, uh, uh, on the side of, Uh, throwing out these restrictions that came from the uh, Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. They were two of those five. The other three basically joined the court during the subsequent decades and accepted the logic and Scalia and Kennedy started essentially what we could think of as an intellectual tradition that was then adopted by the majority of the court and that's when a tipping point is reached. And this actually uh, plays into this entire process because There are two things happening in an area of jurisprudence. There's the majority and the dominant trend of things. And then there are the opponents, the dissenters from within. There's people outside the court that disagree, and they want it changed. Um, But the the only way that change can happen is by the makeup of the court changing, and the people who are on the court agreeing with this dissenter's logic. and as I said, there are a couple of examples, and Brown versus Board of Education is the most obvious one, where that process didn't happen, where basically there wasn't this slow building up of dissatisfaction with the separate but equal uh, doctrine that came from Plessy versus Ferguson. Uh, <clears throat> that was actually just a sudden, like, no, nope, that was wrong, we're going in a totally different direction. The, by far, the norm for the judicial policymaking process is that if there's a change in direction, It comes also as a result of a slow, steady, dissenting policy where they build these things up and they look at the logic of the majority and they try to take it apart. And they argue in the same kinds of terms with different conclusions that the majority is arguing in. Once you hit a tipping point, because of the mechanics of court uh, dynamics, it tends to be long-lasting in the same way that a piece of legislation is enduring until it becomes vulnerable, right? it becomes long-lasting because to undo a change like this tends to take multiple decades. It takes one or two decades to build something up, and then that area of jurisprudence historically will have two to six more decades of sustainability and longevity. Um, and one of the things that, that uh, is dissatisfying to reformers who are opposed to the way the Supreme Court's uh, decisions have gone for decades is that it's so frustrating and, uh, and geologic in terms of transformation. Uh, I have to say, I admire the patience and fortitude of people who oppose Roe v. Wade. I support Roe v. Wade. I think it was correctly ruled. I think, it's a, I think it's good policy, good constitutional interpretation, but the people who disagree with it, and those who think that abortion is murder, and therefore uh, not only do legislatures have the right to regulate it, they have the responsibility to regulate it, they have spent the last 50 years trying to undo this landmark case and all the stuff that built up around it in, in the 70s, and they, it looks like they're about to achieve a half-century political goal. That's pretty impressive level of fortitude, honestly. And also, it's necessary. It's you know it's it, it's it's admirable but it's also necessary because you don't get a new direction in Supreme Court doctrine without slowly undoing something that has been building up itself for several decades. That's actually one of the reasons why it's so important to win in the first place. Much like uh, it's important to get the policy down because then it gives people what they what they want and then you have to take it away. The Supreme Court is the same way. They don't want to just yank things away and have jurisprudence zigzag back and forth. Abortion is legal this year, it's not legal that year, it's legal this year. That is not the way that judges and lawyers have been acculturated to think of the law. The law is supposed to be enduring and very slow changing if it changes at all. It only changes very, very slowly. So once the tipping point is hit, and the tipping point in the case of campaign finance was hit with the 5-4 to majority in uh, um, uh, Citizens United, then the change is potentially long-lasting. And it's vulnerable for a little while, right? Because since it's five to four, if one of the members of that five dies or resigns from the court, and the political conditions are such that the president can put somebody who was on the other side, it could flip back. But it's, even then, it's probably not gonna flip right back. Probably the new majority of five is going to start incrementally undermining that particular landmark case. So things are still long-lasting. Even if there's a shift, but usually it doesn't happen that way. Um, the uh, so and the, one of the reasons you know people are so outraged by five to four rulings, landmark cases that are ruled five to four. It's like it's so it's such a divisive issue. How can the court just take this one direction and overturn the direction for decades? Well, the reason why that's the case is because five to four is the tipping point. That's where the tipping point occurs. Um, you don't wait until you have seven justices to activate a change in direction. You, it takes decades to build up that five in the first place, right? So, Citizens United was decades in the... It seems sudden to the rest of us, uh, but to, to the public. And it does produce a pretty sudden change. Um, and the law as it was written in 2000... And it was written starting in the late 90s, but the law as it was passed in 2002 looked like it was going to be an enduring piece of reform because it had been constructed with precedent that had been around since the 1970s in mind. What they didn't see or couldn't have seen was that the tipping point was coming relatively quickly, right? Between 2002 when the law was passed and 2010 when Citizens United was ruled, that was when there was a crossover. And of course, it was eight years of a Republican president putting people on the bench who agreed with the logic of Scalia and Kennedy back in the Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce case, um, that uh, that case was incorrectly ruled and that the dissenters' logic was the correct way to see the balance between uh, congressional regulation of the democratic system and the requirements of the First Amendment, because that's really what was that issue in Citizens United uh, and in all of the cases that that in Buckley versus Vallejo and Austin versus Michigan and in all the other cases that uh, were more minor cases that had to do with, with campaign finance regulations. Um, the tipping point had been reached. And again, it seems horrible that it's five to four. And when Roe versus Wade is overturned, or when a new precedent doesn't just uh, repudiate Roe versus Wade overtly, but essentially goes a different direction, um, it's going to happen at five to four. It's not, the, the reformers aren't going to wait until they have six, seven, or eight justices. Um, even Brown versus Board of Education, which was unanimous, that was only the result of um, Chief Justice Warren, who himself was a politician. Right? He was, he had been the governor of California. He was a master politician. He made that happen. Otherwise, Brown versus Board of Education would have been six to three, as opposed to nine to zero. Uh, but the tipping point is five to four, and so major cases are going to almost always, by the very logic of how glacial the Supreme Court moves, glacially the Supreme Court moves. Uh, that's, that's, landmark opinions are often, if not always, going to be five to four, um, and they are often going to be the result of decades of political action. If and when Roe versus Wade is overturned, it will not be because of the result of a presidential election. It will not be because Donald Trump wins in 2020 and Ruth Bader Ginsburg either dies or resigns and he puts somebody on and then it, and then it flips. It will not be, because, that will be the tipping point, but that will certainly not be the cause of this. So judicial policymaking is very slow and steady. The judiciary really does, at least for 200 plus years, live up to the expectation that the law will be steady, predictable, and will change, if at all, only very slowly. That's the big difference. Sporadic and rapid, wide ranging, slow and steady. Um, Now, what this actually shows is that our system of political reform has, because it has multiple avenues, uh, it, it provides multiple paces, right? Here's the sprint. Responsive to public opinion and political conditions. Here's the marathon. Slow and steady wins the race. There it is. That's the fourth, I think, fourth cliche of the day. Um, This part right here, and I'm going to actually connect these because enduring but vulnerable belongs together, just like these belong together, uh, (coughs) is that uh, you can't avoid the vulnerability, ultimately. Ultimately. And most good policymakers will avoid short-term vulnerability, having something quickly overturned. Uh, The Affordable Care Act has been challenged uh, several times in the courts, and a couple pieces were taken away, and it was chipped away, but it it was specifically written to endure, at least in the short term, what the court uh, would do to it. As the court evolves and transforms, uh, in, again, an unpredictable way, because... (laughs) <laughs> like is Ruth Bader Ginsburg going to stay alive until Donald Trump isn't president anymore? Or until there's a Democratic president? Because he could win re-election and then we could have a Republican president after that and it doesn't matter how healthy she is and how much uh, you know, she stays healthy, she's not going to outlive eight more years probably of Republican presidents. But um, the, essentially, like that one particular seat, and then there are, you know, there are a number of seats that are, that are potentially uh, going to be vacated, uh, could make something vulnerable that suddenly... And the tipping point, usually historically, tipping points are slow to build, but tipping points can occur either more quickly or more slowly. So the Affordable Care Act has survived court scrutiny so far, and it's now a 10-year-old law. So it's 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 been enduring for a decade, Um, and it's unlikely to be totally gutted by the court with you know within the next two to four years. So it will last for at least a decade and a half. But at some point, it could potentially become vulnerable. Because the new court majority, based on essentially dissenters' opinions, because the cases that have upheld the Affordable Care Act have had dissenters, and those dissenters are doing exactly what Scalia and Kennedy did in Austin versus uh, Michigan Chamber of Commerce, they planted the seeds of a future majority opinion. And that's how judicial policymaking works, versus statutory policymaking, which is, has all of these traits. All right, well, I know that I talked a lot today about issues that weren't political reform. I talked about immigration, I talked about healthcare. care, uh, but the, mostly because the dynamics that underlie judicial policymaking and statutory policymaking are similar, if not identical. Uh, in the case of judicial policymaking, they're identical between political reform and other areas of reform because... All forms of analysis in the judiciary are legalistic constitutional analysis, um, whereas in the statutory realm, there is a difference between political reform and immigration or healthcare reform, because political reform is the winners of the political system rewriting the rules that they're winning under. Judges don't face that same kind of uh, um, incentive or uh, disincentive to engaging in political reform. Um, but I hope that this, this really does, even though I talk about areas outside of political reform, that it really helps you understand why it is that this avenue, while available, um, and it's more available uh, at certain times and other times, um, is way less reliable than this one. But this one also requires a high level of patience, fortitude, and consistency. And then the unpredictable dynamics of the evolution of the uh, judicial philosophy of of five of the members of the Supreme Court. All right, well, that's it. One more content lecture in this class before we jump into sort of our own both simulated and applied uh, exercise in uh, reforming the Portland City government. I hope everybody's doing great uh, and that that I'm looking out the window right now. It's beautiful weather that uh, you have the ability to enjoy the beautiful weather in some way or other. All right, until next time, bye.